The following audio drama is rated PG-13 for parental guidance. This is Amy Frost, narrator and producer, and on behalf of myself and writer J.F. Dubow, I would like to welcome you to Ake Willow. Oh, you've never heard of the place? Don't worry, most people haven't. Ake Willow is a small town on the border between Vermont and Quebec, and as Miriam Dufour, a young woman from Montreal, is about to find out, there's more going on in the sleepy town than meets the eye. The episode you're about to hear... A Most Canadian Haunting was our winter holiday special from 2019. It's a self-contained story and stands alone outside of the series' storyline, and we felt it would give you a good idea of what Aquila is all about. So grab a warm drink, a delicious snack, and enjoy a taste of cozy seasonal horror. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Ake Willow Holiday Special A Most Canadian Haunting I never expected to fall in love in Ake Willow. It's the promise of so many holiday movies. The young, ambitious city girl, now trapped in a small town, is charmed by the simple ways of the people around her and, through the magic of Christmas, decides to stay. This should be my story. I'm a city girl at heart, and through an unlikely set of circumstances, I'm stuck in a small town. I suppose you could say that I've been enchanted by the local flavor. I even own the prerequisite coffee shop where I bake fancy city cakes and prepare sophisticated city meals. You could say I'm part of the community now. Not in the same way my great-grandaunt was, of course. She was a pillar here, a local celebrity. Everyone knew and loved Doris Dufour, and I count myself as fortunate to have inherited her local clientele. But I wasn't born here. I didn't grow up in Aquilo. If my favorite grocery store ever closes, I'm liable to get lost going to the other one. I still don't understand how the line that divides the city between Canada and the United States works. There's no border patrol or customs agents, but the one time I tried to buy cognac for some crepe Suzette, I was on the wrong side of the border, and I got in a ton of trouble. And that's only one in a long line of peculiarities one can expect to find in Aquilo. So, while I clearly deserve my Hallmark movie ending, my heart melting like butter in a pan as I finally find the one person who matches me like port wine does to dark chocolate, I wasn't holding my breath. In fact, the holidays weren't shaping up to be anything like I wanted them to be. The original plan, as drawn up through a complex web of emails, phone calls, and obtuse exchanges on social media, was that I should attend a family dinner in Montreal for Christmas. To say I have a rocky relationship with my immediate family is like describing honey as sweet. It obviously is, but also so much more. My mother mixes worry and disappointment together like I whisk butter and flour to make a roux. Meanwhile, my father is sure to point out that the only reason I have the Aquilo Cafe is luck and that I'll probably waste the opportunity like I got kicked out of cooking school. All the while, my brother will ignore the lot of us as we inevitably sink into a yelling match and focus on whoever his new boyfriend is this year. Despite all this, I was looking forward to going, well, I don't want to call it home, but back to the city. To walk between familiar skyscrapers and visit the Christmas village near Place des Arts. To get coffee with some of my old school friends. Maybe they'll have some good news for me, like, Chef Gagnon getting hit by a bus. <laughs> a girl can dream of a Christmas miracle, can't she? Besides, Aquila would have even less for me during the holiday period. Olivia was dragging her husband Henry on a seven-day cruise of the Caribbean. It's the perfect trip, she said. I can visit relatives in Kingston, but I have to be back on the boat before it leaves, or they drive me nuts. The idea of seeing family in short, controlled bursts certainly appeals, if her parents and cousins are anything like mine, I completely understand Olivia. Thankfully, she left me with a bottle of her best cider to give my parents. 
I considered using it to cook something special, but in the end, I put a green and blue plaid fleece ribbon around the neck of the bottle, like a little scarf to decorate it. An elegant substitute to Christmas wrapping. Aquilo, however, had no intention of letting me go anywhere. Maybe, like a jealous lover, it was afraid that if I had a taste of the city again, I wouldn't be coming back. So it sent someone to stop me. Dr. Ilias Payne. The man introduced himself to me, a hand extended over the counter of my cafe. Now, I don't know how often you go to have coffee, but it isn't customary to introduce yourself to the barista. You might drop a name, but the formal handshake isn't necessary to buy a bagel and tea. But Dr. Ilias Payne wasn't just there for bagel and tea, or croissants and coffee, or even a complex magical cake. No. What Dr. Ilias wanted was much more complicated and annoying. He wanted to ruin my holidays and cancel Christmas for me. His was a plan of diabolical proportions, and I immediately hated him for it. We're having our annual solstice celebration, and I want you to do the catering, he said, his cold hand wrapping around mine. After all, I'm told the best food in Aquilo can be found at the Aquilo. The joke was bad enough. He didn't have to highlight it with a wink. But he did. Ilias was friendly in that arrogant way that makes it sound like he's owed kindness. A tall man with what I guess you could call British features. A long face with strong eyebrows and bright, kind gray eyes and perfect large teeth. After our handshake, which left my hand cold and clammy, he brushed his graying hair and looked around the cafe, as if appraising it for resale. It's a huge group. I've invited just about everyone in town. In fact, I had to rent out the school's arena. I thought I had taken everything into consideration, but I forgot the food. Can you believe it? I was about to turn him down, thinking about how annoyed Mom would be if I had to cancel on her just a few days before Christmas. But the name Payne kept nagging at me. I knew that name from somewhere, but damn my memory for keeping the source a secret. I'm sorry, I say, wringing my apron as if I could squeeze the awkwardness from it. We're going to be closed over the holiday. Didn't you see the sign at the door? His face, jovial and eager when he entered, broke down into worry and helplessness, like a child who'd been told his birthday was cancelled. But, he said, the word blowing on his hopes trying to rekindle them, I'm willing and capable of making it worth your while. Ask anyone, Ilias Payne never box at a steep price. And apparently Ilias Payne is fine talking about himself in the third person. That being said... I could really use the money, as my student loans aren't going to pay themselves, and also, I finally figured out who Dr. Ilias Payne really is. His name wasn't in the paper last fall, but his daughter's was. Clara Payne was found dead behind the bank two blocks from the Aquilo Cafe, in an alley, by me. She was the fifth victim of the Aquilo Killer, a moniker that has not been great for business, let me assure you. I can skip a paycheck for the sake of family, and I can say no to a windfall if it means preserving my mental health with a well-deserved break, but what kind of person would I have been to turn down a man who'd so recently lost a daughter? Resigned, I let a sad, exasperated sigh breathe through my lips. Thankfully, Ilias didn't catch it. I didn't want him to realize how much of an imposition this was for me. The whole point was to avoid adding to his burden. This would be his first Christmas since Clara's passing. He should be allowed to celebrate it any way he wants and with the people of his choosing. Secretly, I hoped that by catering the event, I might weasel an invitation for myself. If this is going to be the event of the holidays here, why should I be excluded? Fine, I said. I'll be happy to cater your solstice celebration. How many people do you expect? He beamed. So much, I thought for a moment that the lights in the Aquilos dining area went up for a moment. His hands, warmer now for having been inside for a few minutes, reached out and grabbed mine for another hearty handshake. Oh, thank you so much, Miss Dufour. You have no idea how much this means to me. 
so, so much. Let me assure you, this means everything. His exuberance was a little scary, the same way a lot of people's emotions in Aguilo tend to be a little extra, like a sauce that's been allowed to reduce for just a little too long. Ilias reigned in his enthusiasm, but not completely. Grin plastered on his face and aborted tears of joy still hanging at the corner of his eyes, he managed to answer my question. Don't worry about how many people will be there, he said, still holding on to my hand. Make everything. Empty your refrigerator and cupboard. You are going to close for the week anyway, right? Well, don't worry about it. Nothing will go to waste. We discussed a few more details over some coffee, and I inspected my inventory to see exactly what I would be able to do and how much it might set the good doctor back. The Aquilo isn't really a restaurant, so there wasn't enough to make the kind of extravagant buffet Ilias wanted, but I could manage some magic of my own and make what was there spectacular enough to compensate. By the time he walked out into the thick December snow and the cold Aquilo night, Dr. Ilias Payne had a satisfied smile on his lips, a menu in his hands, and a spring in his step. It was almost enough to make me forget that I still didn't have an invitation to his shindig. Fine. I'll admit to having felt a little bit rejected and jealous of everyone going to this party. Everyone spent weeks trying to convince me to be part of this community, but then I'm not good enough for their solstice celebration? People were walking into the cafe with fancy envelopes for days. Silver painted letters with bright red, honest-to-God wax seals. At first, I thought it was a really exclusive affair. Both mayors had invitations, after all. Then, as the date grew closer, it just seemed like everyone had a shiny piece of paper asking them to be at the arena on Christmas Eve. Everyone except me. Oh, I tried to convince myself that I didn't want to go. Besides, I had plans. I was going to ride no less than three buses to get back to Montreal for the pleasure of arguing with my parents for a few days. Why would I want to be invited to the biggest social event since making Aquilo my home? To top it off, I knew the food would be amazing. Amazing and beautiful. Because I certainly wasn't going to simply bake a few cakes, make a charcuterie board, and call it a day. Dr. Ilias Payne told me to use everything, and if there's one thing I stock up on during the holidays, it's ginger spice. It took me a while to decide what I was going to do. I, I knew what it would be made of. Gingerbread. But if you expect me to just slap together some random house, you do not know Miriam Dufour. If I was going to make any kind of gingerbread structure, it was going to be magical. I thought of a fairy castle or maybe something out of Lord of the Rings. Maybe a full-on replica of Hogwarts. But those are made-up magical places. I was still debating what to make when I heard a sound. Now, if you know me, you know that sounds from the back of the Aquilo conjure one of two very specific emotions. Abject terror or molten irritation. It all depends on what I think I'm going to find there. Demons or raccoons. Well, judging from the skittering claws on ceramic tiles and the sudden draft of cold air from the back door... I was leaning towards the latter. During this first holiday in Aquillow, my relationship with the critters there was still, shall we say, fraught. A banging of the door to the display, followed by the pitter-patter of thieving paws, always told the same story. Some raccoon was stealing food. They'd been doing it for months, more often since the first snow. I'm far from heartless, and I still owe the dawn a bit of a favor, so I've been more liberal with throwing out food. You know, maybe I'll make too much stew for the day, and instead of keeping the leftovers, they end up in the bin. It's not waste if I know they'll end up in furry stomachs, right? Yet, despite my unbridled generosity, these little vermin still break in and steal from the display, or the kitchen, or the pantry. There's no place in the Aquilo Cafe that's safe from them, and I've tried changing the locks. They just have a knack for getting into places. Usually my places. 
As was often the case back then, frustration got the better of me and I ran out to see what they'd gotten into. It wasn't difficult to figure out. The only things left in the display were four brioche. Well, three now. More annoyed than was reasonable, I ran to the dumpster to confront the thieves. Ankle-deep snow, freezing wind, and billowing gusts be damned, this was the night the Don and his furry cabal were in for a reckoning. That's it, I screamed as I lifted the lid, heavy with snow, to the dumpster. You are this close to eviction. I expected to see all of the ring-tailed burglars huddled around, having themselves a feast off my food. That was the usual scenario when I confronted the raccoons. They'd stare at me from their stolen meal, hiss for effect. I'd shower them with invectives, and that was that. What was I supposed to do? Take the cookies, croissants, and rolls back? That time, I caught them faster, I guess, or the thief had been slowed down by the snow. Whatever the reason, I was privy to part of the scenario I'd missed before. The thief, in this case, was the smallest of the raccoons. I don't have a name for all of them. Most people call the big one the Dawn, and I've heard the one with the tag on its ear referred to as Crimson. The small one I just called the Runt, but that's not a name. It's just because she's the smallest of the gang and looks so much scrawnier than the rest. I'd never given much thought to why, though. She steals food like the rest of them, so I assume she just doesn't eat as much. What I saw in the dumpster that night went some ways to explaining things. And, to be fair, also broke my heart a little. The runt had the brioche, a piece of baked good almost half her tiny size, in her jaws. She was the thief, but she dropped her ill-gained meal in front of the dawn, almost as an offering. A gift to her round-bellied monarch, which he took, tearing just a corner for the runt to eat while sharing the rest with the others. I was so taken aback by the display that I forgot to keep yelling. I expected the little raccoon to strike back, to fight for her brioche. She had the guts to sneak into my kitchen, outsmarting the locked door somehow, and take a treat from my display. You'd think she'd be feisty enough to at least snarl back, maybe swipe a claw or something. Nothing. I'm not one to anthropomorphize critters too much, but I'd have said the runt didn't even look angry or scared, just defeated. For the span of too short a second, I felt a pang of sympathy for the little runt. Poor little girl not being invited to the party. The party to which she brought the food, too. But then I realized it was me I was pitying, not the raccoon. Politics of the trash kingdom behind the cafe were none of my business. They'd been going on long before I arrived and would be the same long after I'd gone. I walked back into the warmth of the aquilo, trailing in about five gallons of snow to melt on the floor with me. I tried to shake off most of it and decided to do the rest of my cooking wearing socks instead of trail water and ice into my kitchen. The burning ovens radiated heat into the floor, making my cotton-clad toes toasty and comfortable. Raccoons, snow, and stolen goods be damned. I was happy. I could almost forget being snubbed by a whole community during the most festive time of the year. Screw them. I get to cook in the most magical place I know. That's when it dawned on me. The most magical place. I was going to make a gingerbread replica of the Aguelo Cafe. Not only would it be challenging and beautiful, but it would also make it impossible for anyone at the solstice celebration to forget where their feast came from. Just like the meal stolen and shared by the raccoons, it came from the Aquilo. Once I got the idea of making a gingerbread version of the Aquilo Cafe, everything about the whole project took on a completely different hue. What was to be a lucrative and ambitious catering contract was now colored by how this was going to be a celebration of my skills. Sure, I had some basic sandwiches with meats and cheeses available, but all the bread was homemade. Not only did I have garden variety baguette, but I had Belgian loaves with roasted garlic and French onion butter, thin slices of stiff pumpernickel with smoked salmon and chives, as well as sourdough rolls stuffed with melted camembert and cranberries. 
I turned two jars of olives into tapenade and fried some pickles to eat with a spinach dip that I spiked with just a hint of hot peppers. Not enough to burn, but just the right amount to give a kick. The kitchen was awash with the delicious smell of simmering stroganoff, destined to be served in dozens of small bowls of crusted bread, topped by a cube of aged cheddar. There were bowls full of marinated and breaded lemon pepper chicken wings, ready for baking and to be enjoyed with any of the six sauces I'd lovingly prepared. Two plastic tubs in the refrigerator were filled with salads. One, a ready-to-mix Caesar with sliced anchovies and generous amounts of grated Parmesan, the other a pasta salad with baked prosciutto flakes and a touch of balsamic vinegar, three different kinds of bell peppers, and a mix of herbs and spices I'd been perfecting for months. All this and more before even mentioning dessert. I had it all. I made butterscotch candies that I crushed and used in chocolate brownies to give them some crunch. I made three different ice creams, chocolate, pistachio, and salted caramel. Then rolled them into balls the size of a loony, covering each in a layer of solid dark chocolate. I slapped together a cake in the shape of a snowman, decorated with buttercream of the purest white and with a smooth flavor but a breath of mint to give it a cool aftertaste. Try that with gross fondant. I had bowls of sucre à la crème, chocolate mousse, fruit tarts, and candied orange peels. As impressive as all this might sound, it was all window dressing for the actual piece de résistance. The gingerbread Aquilo Café. To this day, I still don't feel like I have a complete understanding of the Ake Willow. It's a more complex establishment than one might assume from the exterior. It's built on generations of history going through six to four women before ending up in my care. Back in those days, I admit I was even more ignorant. You'd expect that my rendition of the cafe would have been superficial or lacking, but... When I was done, after hours of painstaking work spread over three days, I had captured the very essence of the place. It wasn't so much that I had managed to create a mathematically exact replica. Anyone can do that. It's about infusing the model with the soul of the ache willow. I now know that my hand was guided through the process, but as I was putting together the wall of gingerbread and piping icing to draw on details, I experienced a level of comfort and cheer I'd seldom enjoyed. It was like sitting in front of a roaring fire, cocoa in hand, wearing thick flannel pajamas and the coziest wool socks in the world. But I was also doing it alone, and every moment of work was a reminder of that. Building the cafe, as empty and gingerbread as it was around me, began to take its toll, and before long, I was adding candy patrons to the replica. Marzipan dolls with licorice eyes and jelly blush. I populated my creation with everyone I knew and could think of. The mayors argued in the middle of the dining room while the cloud worshippers clad in meringue robes waited near the register. I even added Orléans and Alessandria against my better judgment. When I was done, I lit the tea candles used to illuminate the interior of the gingerbread cafe and marveled at my handiwork. In the darkened kitchen of the Aquilo, the diminutive display looked like it was but a breath away from coming to life. The flicker of flames moved shadows inside the sweet structure, tricking the eye into seeing the sugar patrons dance and move. Such a crowded little cafe in such a lonely, empty, larger version of itself. I sat alone in that kitchen for longer than I would want to admit, staring at my handiwork in complete silence. Proud, but with no one to share the pride with, it tasted like narcissism. You know what they say, though. If you ever feel lonely, just sit in the dark for long enough and you won't feel so alone anymore. It's meant to be a joke about how people will imagine things going bump in the night when left in the darkness for too long. As I snuffed out the tea lights so they didn't damage the gingerbread cafe or melt the sugar customers, I almost wished something would stir in the shadows, fear being almost preferable to loneliness. I still had lots to do, however. Breads had to be taken out of the oven and the stroganoff had to be monitored so it didn't overcook. If I couldn't share the presence of a fellow human being, I still had the best company. A busy kitchen. 
I pulled myself to my feet, taking one last look at the darkened shadow of my masterpiece before flipping the lights back on. But just as my fingers found the switch, a noise. Not the knock of a mittened hand at the door, or the ring of a phone promising to connect me to a loved one. It was, instead, the familiar sound of the kitchen door creaking open at the back. A gentle gust of cold wind and a pillar of light flooded from the porch outside. And at the bottom, where the light met the floor, the shadow of a puny little raccoon. I let her, the runt, sneak into the dining room. She probably thought I wasn't there, what with the lights turned off and my prolonged period of silence, but boy was she in for a surprise. Or so I thought. She got to the display, and I gritted my teeth as she pilfered through the leftover baked goods. She took whatever she wanted and began to paw her way back to the door. Little did she know, I was already there, waiting, broom in hand. The look on her face and the shock in her little beady eyes felt worth it at the moment. Finally, after months of this nonsense, I'd caught one of them in the act. The Don had a specific brand of defiance whenever I confronted him. Whether in his own garbage domain or wherever we'd cross paths, never did the fat raccoon back down. From hissing to rude gestures, he always stood up to me, or anyone, no matter what. The runt had none of the spinal fortitude for confrontation. When she saw me towering over her, brioche held hungrily in her mouth, she had none of the bravado her patriarch was known for. Instead, she clutched her prize close to her chest before tearing a generous bite out of the dessert. Then she scampered back into the shadows of the darkened cafe. I'm a conscientious business owner, and while I know these are not ordinary vermin— they do live the bulk of their lives in trash. I wasn't happy with her wandering my kitchen and dining room. Enough that she kept getting into the food display, I didn't want to worry about finding raccoon fur in the coffee grounds. But as soon as I flipped the lights on, hoping I'd find the runt cowering in a corner so I could show her the door, the timer on the oven went off. It was terrible timing. I couldn't exactly leave the bread in the oven too long or it would burn, and there was so much left to do in so very little time. On the other hand, what did it matter if the runt was left alone in the cafe? All the important food had already been cooked, mixed, baked, fried, or blended into the Feast for the Solstice celebration. I emptied the rest of the display and secured the coffee and sugar before locking up the dining room. Let her have her sad little brioche on the floor. Merry Christmas. It took three trips in Dr. Ilias Payne's minivan to move all the food from the Aquilo to the Anthony Gillard Memorial Arena. Most places inherit their name from important individuals as an honor. Generous patrons or historic members of the community give their names to streets and landmarks. Saints are particularly popular namesakes for buildings and cities in Quebec. Aquilo does things differently, however. Anthony Gillard was no hero. In fact, one could say he was an embarrassment to the city. A fatal embarrassment. Long before I moved to town, long before I was born even, perhaps at a time when Doris was still a child, a great tragedy occurred at the arena. Gillard, who was custodian at the time, was derelict in his duties. Some suspect that, instead of using funds provided to him by the city council, he was pocketing the money. The end result was that the electrical systems at the arena were ill-maintained. It was inevitable that, at some point, this would backfire spectacularly. On a day marked by particularly high temperatures, the refrigeration system in the arena failed. Frayed wires or a faulty transformer allowed the ice in the rink to be covered by a thick layer of meltwater. The kids playing a game of hockey at the time, as Canadians do, were amused at skating through the cold water, splashing each other as they went around the rink. That would have been the end of that, if not for one further accident that turned the day into tragedy. The scoreboard, a huge, primitive electronic abomination, came loose from its anchors in the ceiling, crashing down onto the ice. 
Those in the bleachers at the time say that, miraculously, none of the soaked hockey players were hit, and all stood in stunned silence after the scoreboard hit the ice. For a second, disaster seemed to have been averted, until the electric components of the scoreboard hit the water and everyone on the ice was electrocuted to death. Bystanders, horrified by the situation, tried to help, but just as many ended up sharing the player's fate. Anthony Gelard was nowhere near the arena that day and escaped prosecution. But Aquilo would not let his neglect be forgotten. The arena was named the Anthony Gelard Memorial Arena, not in memory of the man, but of his incompetence, a reminder he had to live with until the day he died and beyond. There are tables set up in the middle of the rink, and there should be extension cords running up to them if you need to plug anything in, Ilias Payne explained. The arena is nothing like it used to be. It's now a fully modern building. The ice can be easily covered to allow for community events like the solstice celebration or weddings and union meetings, and the scoreboard is a gigantic LCD screen securely attached to the rafters in the ceiling. All the electrics are surge-protected by modern breakers to avoid a repeat of the Anthony Gelade incident. "'What's under the sheet?' he asked, helping me carry the covered gingerbread Aguilo cafe. "'That is a surprise,' I say, trying to be mischievous about it. Even with my masterpiece only hours from being revealed, the sense of alienation is too strong to let me savor the anticipation. "'Oh, I like surprises,' Payne says, pretending to sneak a peek under the sheet. We lay down the spread, the still-covered gingerbread Aquilo Cafe at the center of the feast, like a ghostly castle surrounded by its fiefdoms. Neighborhoods of food and victuals lay in the shadows of the manor of sweets, soon joined by towers of wine and soft drink bottles and a pyramid of plastic cups. This looks fantastic, Miss Dufour. Helen was right. You're a miracle worker. This is going to be the most memorable solstice celebration in Aquilo's history. His emphasis on memorable and the hunger in his eyes were touching. In the wrong context, one might think them weird, but this was a man trying to build new memories after the loss of a child. At least, that's what I thought at the time. I've been meaning to ask, I say, putting the final touches on the bread bowls, ready to be filled with stew. Wasn't the solstice... Two days ago. Was it? Payne answered, poking a finger at the fabric draped over my masterpiece. It's probably no big deal. I didn't know that Dr. Ilias Payne was such a hands-on party planner. His wife, Madeline, along with a few of their close friends, were all busying themselves setting up for the evening. Chairs by the dozen were brought out, unfolded, and set up in the rink, all facing eastward. There, a table was set up, covered with a dark cloth and what appeared to be religious paraphernalia. Was Ilias Payne planning on performing midnight mass? Candles were set up on the ground in long, elaborate lines bordering the chairs. These weren't cheap dollar store tea lights or emergency candles for power outage. These were thick pillars, four inches in diameter, all a rich ivory that projected a warm light all around. There were easily a hundred of these, enough to light the floor of the arena. It must have cost a fortune. The doctor spared no expense. I knew that because I knew how much I was getting paid, and it was no small amount. The rest of my display installed, delicious food in ridiculous quantities and of a quality I'm sure Aquilo had seldom seen up to that point. I gave some final instructions to Madeline on how to serve the desserts and got ready to show off why I was worth every penny the doctor was investing in my work. Finally, I say, a bit of mischief and pride in my voice, what would a Christmas party be without some good old-fashioned gingerbread? With a dramatic flourish, I pull the cloth from over the gingerbread representation of the Aquilo Café. In hindsight, it's a miracle that I didn't send half a dozen bread bowls to the ground or spilled the spinach dip all over the table. Madeline gave an ego-satisfying gasp, followed by a stream of compliments as she poured over the details of the roof and texture of the exterior walls. I was about to point out and mention the detailed interior when I saw her. How in the world did she even manage to sneak into the replica without breaking down a wall or something? It didn't matter. 
There she was, curled up in the miniature sugary dining room of my scaled Aquilo Cafe. The runt of the raccoons had eaten one of the marzipan mayors, the one from the Canadian side, which I hope isn't an omen of anything, and fallen asleep, cuddling the brioche she'd stolen earlier. Silently, I fumed at the subtle destruction of my masterpiece. The interior was a mess and no longer even worth lighting up. Hours had been spent and then wasted on the baked sugar tables and jelly decorations. More importantly, I now had a small member of the kingdom of garbage sleeping right in the middle of my very expensive food spread. Thank the stars for Ilias Payne's pedantic annoyance. This isn't a Christmas party, Miss Dufour, he interrupted, politely but clearly irritated at my misstep. The solstice celebration is so much more than a commercial interpretation of a pagan holiday. This from the guy who celebrates the winter solstice on the 24th of December. I wanted to call him out that having his celebration on Christmas Eve was simply begging for people to make mistakes. But I'm a professional and kept my mouth shut. Do we have everything we need now, Miriam? Madeline asked. Unlike her husband, she seems a lot more nervous. There was an electric level of anticipation behind her strained smile. If Ilias Payne could move on from his daughter's death, Madeline required bigger effort to put on a brave face. I thought, for a second, I could go back to the Aquilo and brew her a special cup of tea that might tame her grief, but I thought better of it. You should be good, but if there's anything, I'll be at the cafe. It's a five-minute walk, so don't hesitate to give me a call. The good doctor shook my hand, assuring me all my equipment, plates, and utensils would be fine and ready for collecting in the morning. Madeline gave me a hug and whispered Merry Christmas into my ear, as if it was our little secret. I took one last look at my display and what a glorious accomplishment it was, put on my coat, and turned to leave. But I had no intention of going anywhere. Whatever this celebration was going to be, there was still a raccoon sleeping dead in the middle of my food display. Not only that, but it was taking its nap in an actual representation of my cafe. What was meant to be an advertising masterstroke would be a disaster if that snoozing trash rat was discovered. Guests streamed in while I hid in the washroom. Peeking through a crack in the door, I witnessed a procession of familiar faces parading from the entrance and onto the covered ice of the arena. The mayors arrived together, and I sighed in relief that having a marzipan effigy devoured had no apparent effect. You laugh, but this is Aquilow. Helen Edna, notary public, also walked past my hiding spot. For a second, I thought she stole a glance in my direction. I doubt she saw me, but I could tell there was no part of her that wanted to be here. Then again, when did Helen Edna ever want to be anywhere? More of my patrons were also there, the mustache man and the sandwich man, Julia Remington still clad in black, and both Detective Wilson and Inspector Lamore were in attendance. The only people missing were any members of the cloud worshippers and the two inquisitors. Neither surprised me with their absence. Cocktails were had and hands were shaken while greetings were exchanged. Meanwhile, I snuck around to hide in the penalty box— observing the event I wasn't meant to be a part of. From this vantage, I felt confident no one would notice me while I could keep an eye on the giant gingerbread building in the middle of the catering table. I couldn't completely suppress my pride at seeing so many people I knew stare, astounded at my masterpiece. I may not have been a guest at this solstice celebration, but it would not be allowed to happen without Miriam Dufour's presence. Hopefully, None of them were so impressed as to try and sneak a peek inside. A gentle tap on the microphone that hung from the scoreboard signaled to the guests that they should be seated. As much organization as Dr. Ilias Payne had put into the solstice celebration, no one but him and Madeline seemed to have any idea what the event was really about. Guests wandered around the aisles, some with their coats, others having left them at a coat check. There was clear doubt about whether there was a seating arrangement or not, and it took several minutes for everyone to settle into the creaky folding chairs. Then, 
whatever few electric lights still illuminated the rank were shut off. A cold shiver went down my spine, and a brief gust of wind sent ripples along the rows of candles. A rustling of clothes came over the microphone, and the silhouette of Dr. Ilias Payne appeared behind the table in front of the crowd. Clad in shadows for dramatic effect, Ilias's voice came in low but loud over the speakers. In a place meant to be filled with cheers of rabid fans and supporting parents, his ominous words felt out of place. Friends, he started, letting the word echo through the rows of empty seats looking down on the assembled audience. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Traditionally, the holidays are about family and spending time with our loved ones, and I know what a sacrifice it is to ask that you spend this time with neighbors, co-workers, employers, clients, and acquaintances. But, in a way, we, the citizens of Aquilo, are family. Just in the last year, we've suffered many important traumatizing losses— Pillars of our community as well as several of the most vulnerable among us were lost. To a few of us, that meant our own families were lessened, that these holidays would be so much emptier for the absence of loved ones. The last time so many of us were assembled together, we were burying the bodies of Anias, Candace, Nicoletta, Hannah, and my beloved Clara. A sniffle echoed through the arena. It could have been someone nursing a cold, but it also might have been Madeline or one of the assembled guests. I was the one who found Clara behind the bank. Hearing her father mention her name summoned the image of her body and all the damage that had been done to her. My own complicated cocktail of emotions welled up as I listened to Ilias speak about his daughter. The good news in these dark times is that with your presence, with your support, our family doesn't need to be so broken. For the span of a night, the void left by Clara can be filled once more. If you lend me your hearts, the hole in our lives can be filled, if only for the span of one night. I was touched. This explained it all. This man had invested so much into this evening, only so he wouldn't have to spend it at his home, alone with the vestiges of his broken family. I felt guilty for mocking Ilias's solstice celebration, now that I knew the purpose behind it. This event was, in fact, a touching display of love and community. At least, that's what I thought for a moment, before the good doctor lit the candles on the table. We've prepared an amazing evening for everyone here. We have food and games, and later there will be music and dance, but first we need to welcome our guest of honor. The hair on the back of my neck rose, like when I step out to drop trash in the bins behind the aquilo after an hour in the hot kitchen. Goose flesh prickled my arms, and I could feel the uncomfortable anticipation of the assembled crowd. Guest of honor... The wave of hushed whispers that rippled through the seated guests, all various flavors of the same question. Who? I knew who. If this was anywhere but Aquilo, I'd have been incredulous at best, terrified at worst, but here? I didn't know exactly what to expect. Ilias Payne lit the candles on the table, casting an ominous glow on his and Madeline's features. Using one of the candles, he lit what looked like a stick of incense. A thick but narrow wisp of white smoke swirled and spiraled above their heads. From the back of the table, Madeline pulled out a plastic bag, the kind you get at the grocery if you don't have your own. From that bag, she pulled out a sweater. It was red and stained maroon, the color of dried blood. I knew that sweater. I'd seen it back in the fall on the body of Clara Payne. On this night, Ilias went on, when the veil between worlds is thin and we can almost reach out and touch our... Ilias was cut off as he explained his ritual. That's the equinox, someone shouted from amongst the guests. The interruption did little to stop Ilias. His monologue was cut off, but he busied himself with the rest of his ritual instead. 
everything about his actions had a naive, almost childish air. Not so much the motions and procedures of a practiced sorcerer, but the improvised and cocksure mannerisms of a boy playing a game. His fingers were nimble as he cut a piece of the bloody sweater, not because of experience, but because of practice as a surgeon and utmost confidence in what he was doing. But what he was doing was nonsense. Or it should have been. Yet, as he burned his daughter's bloody sweater and tossed seemingly random powders into the flame, a sort of electricity rippled through the air. The effect was universal, and later some of the guests would describe their breath as feeling charged. A few more protests rose from the attendees. My own words echoed in pointing out that it was Christmas Eve, not the actual solstice, and that whatever he was doing was either nonsense or extremely dangerous. None of it affected Ilias. Most of the residents assembled couldn't appreciate what the pains were going through and underestimated what they might be willing to risk for one more Christmas with their daughter. Hell, I didn't appreciate it either at the time. They were right, however, those who warned Ilias. Whatever spell he thought he was conjuring didn't work. But there must have been something in his waving of arms and mumbling chant. Magic, as I've learned since then, is a lot about intent. And as I just mentioned, few people can will more intent than a mourning parent. Clara never manifested at the Anthony Gelaud Arena that night, or any other. It's probably best she didn't. The grieving believe they want to see their loved ones step forth from beyond the grave, but when has that ever turned out to be a good thing? While Ilias Payne whispered the words of his ritual into the microphone, encouraging his guests to join in to add their will and intent to his own, I noticed the other uninvited guest poking her head out of her hiding spot. The raccoon, who'd stowed away in my gingerbread cafe, had woken up and immediately chewed a sizable hole into the side of my creation— Anger rose at the sight of her, and I was ready to rush the table and nab the little thief while everyone's attention was occupied. Something about her expression and the way she looked around, terrified but knowing, made me hesitate. Her furry little head swiveled around like a windsock in a hurricane, pointing this way and that, never settling on anything in particular. Her beady eyes glinted a strange blue as she tracked invisible figures around the arena. Her paws flexed around her still, uneaten brioche, as if grasping for security. I'd never seen the raccoons be afraid of anything but each other. And the demon. They certainly were never afraid of me. But this one was terrified. So, instead of rushing the table to catch the raccoon, I ran over to see if she was okay. Months of adversarial relationships with these vermin evaporated as I watched her, scared and confused, trapped in my kingdom of food. Forgetting discretion, as I crossed the rink towards the table, I could feel things brushing against me and hear the sound of metal on ice, even though the actual ice was two inches under thick plywood planks. A few feet from the feast, a powerful force ran into and then through me, sending me sprawling on the ground. I blinked the shock away, trying to get back to my feet. The wooden floor felt slippery and the ground cold. Shimmers of green and blue lights flickered and floated around me like ephemeral aurora borealis. Then I saw them. We all did. Thirteen apparitions, glowing with unearthly purpose, zoomed and sped around the arena, Ghostly players clad in full hockey gear, along with a lone referee, swarmed around the assembled guests. At first, it all seemed harmless, a hallucinatory game being played as a vision from beyond the grave. Whatever Dr. Ilias Payne had done with his conjuring, it had indeed summoned the spirits of the dead. But Clara didn't die at the Anthony Gelaud Arena. She died near a bank on Rue Principale. The restless spirits of the arena were the teens who died here, along with their coaches and friends who were now materializing in the stands and at the side of the ice. We all looked in bewilderment, watching as players passed, shot, and stole the puck from each other. 
They seemed unaware of me, Ilias, his family, or his guests. We all watched in awe as the game played itself around us, a window into a competition that was abruptly stopped by a tragic accident. All we could hear, apart from the cold slicing of skates on ice and the occasional grunt of a player getting cross-checked, was the voice of Ilias Payne repeating no over and over again, raging against his failure. But his complaint was soon cut short by a ghostly player running him over, knocking his table down and the wind right out of him. The impact had the force that only the dead could bring to bear, and Ilias went sliding all the way to the side wall. The crack of bones could be heard echoing all through the arena. The reality that the spectral players could not only touch but hurt the living swept through the crowd in a tsunami of panic. A moment later, another guest was sent somersaulting through the air, landing on the floor in a pile. The whole crowd spread into a dangerous game of dodging violent, unstoppable ghosts, trying desperately to make it to the player boxes through which they'd entered. Meanwhile, I stood next to my painstakingly prepared food, waiting for the moment when it would be destroyed by a dead hockey player plowing through the whole thing like a freight train. Or I would be sent to the ground again, perhaps breaking a few important bones in the process. Sharp, pinprick jabs grabbed at my arm, gently pulling me closer to the table. The raccoon, brioche still held firmly in her jaw, was pulling me close with a desperate embrace of my arm. Then I noticed why. Folded chairs were sent flying by the apparitions and guests were rammed or tripped by the ghosts, but the table with food was avoided. In fact, on more than one occasion, a player would stop, look at the food, then skate away. One even picked up a slice of pumpernickel with smoked salmon, smelled it, and then tossed it back on the table in disgust. How dare you, I snarled. You wouldn't know good food if it bit you in the ass. More of the dead players made their stop at the table. Some nibbled at the tapenade, others took bites or sniffed the stroganoff, but always tossed everything away, making that grossed-out face only teenagers seem to manage so well. The dead have such unsophisticated taste. They were clearly hungry, skating up to the table again and again, but always rejecting the delicious food they found there. Stupid kids, I thought. If it's not pizza, burgers, or hot dogs, it's not food to their ignorant taste buds. That's when it dawned on me. I couldn't tell what Ilias had done or how we could get rid of the ghosts, but I knew how to get them off the rink. The little raccoon holding onto my arm seemed to have the same idea. Reluctantly, she dropped her brioche, and looking like she was trapped between the proverbial devil and the deep blue sea for a moment, she jumped. I doubt I would have made it safely to the side of the rink without that little brioche-stealing raccoon. Her senses, sharper than mine, sharp enough to see the ghosts before anyone else did, guided us towards safety, stopping more than once only a second before our path was cut off by a speeding apparition. Once I got to the safety of the box, I could have simply run away. It's what I expected the raccoon to do, and what every fiber of my being wanted of me. We could both be back at the Aquilo, wishing everyone left behind the best of luck. But... I had friends amongst the guests, and, judging from the cries of fears and occasional moan of pain, there would be many more injuries before everyone made it out. In the end, neither me nor the raccoon were cowardly enough to make for the exit. Instead, united in purpose, we ran towards the most disgusting part of the arena. No, not the locker rooms, where the stench of sweat and abundantly used body sprays sticks itself to the air. I'm a tough girl. I can handle a bit of body odor. The place I had in mind was far more vile to my particular sensibilities. It pained me to admit it, but if anything was going to appease the skating dead and put a stop to the most Canadian haunting ever, it wouldn't be my fancy desserts and gourmet dishes. Food and magic overlap in many points, but one of the most important common aspects is that one must know her audience. Hungry visions of teenaged boys from decades ago didn't want olive tapenade and pumpernickel bread. They hungered for pizza, fries, and terrible cafeteria hot dogs. The bounty that would get them off the ice and away from Ilias Payne's guests was stashed in the arena snack bar. 
My accomplice's refined senses guided us towards the kitchens in record time. A small blessing as I cringed hearing the bone-shattering sound of another impact, followed by the terrified cries of the assembled guests. Already, my mind was racing, preparing my plan of attack. Thirteen people, even hungry dead teenagers, wouldn't take that much to feed. I could get hot dogs and pizza going pretty fast, but starting up the oil to make fries would take longer. But the apparitions would know to come and get the food was also a bold gamble on my part. Not as bold as assuming I'd have easy access to the snack bar. Of course, I complained to my furry companion, as if expecting her to understand. The door was locked, and behind it, any stores of food and all the implements to cook them. My fists closed on the cold, polished steel of the handle, shaking it in pointless rage. I yelled at the obstacle and gave it a kick for good measure, then started to formulate a fresh plan. How long would it take for me to find a sledgehammer or a crowbar, and would that be enough to pry the door open? As I paced and spat fury in equal measure, the little raccoon finally demonstrated something I'd been wanting to understand since my very first week in Aquilo. How she and her irritating family keep getting inside my kitchen whenever the mood struck them. I'd known the Aquilo raccoons to be smart and resourceful. The Dawn, their fat leader, had often exhibited communication skills far more advanced and rude than his kind should possess. What I didn't expect was just how smart and clever these little burglars could be. Sharp claws and nimble fingers acted like natural lockpicks, and what appeared to be a futile attempt by my new companion to chew off the handle soon resulted in a soft click and the slow swinging open of the door. Had I witnessed such a display on the doors of the Aquilo, as I'm sure happened almost daily to my great annoyance, I would have gone into a rage of broom-waving proportions. Considering the situation in context, I instead swept the raccoon from the handle where she still hung and twirled her into a hug. Under normal circumstances, I would not recommend picking up a raccoon or other wild animal by surprise, especially not ones with sharp claws and pointy teeth. There are scars on my arms from where the dawn bit and clawed at me at the past. Crushing this little raccoon to my face in a tight embrace could have easily cost me an eye. There was no such toll to pay, though the runt did push away from my sudden burst of celebratory affection. Right, right, I said, putting her down on the floor. There's still work to do. I may have mentioned before that kitchens, no matter what kind or where they are, have no secrets from me. If it's got a stove, oven, and a counter on which to chop things and knead dough, I'll figure it out and have control over it in no time. Food preparation areas, especially the commercial kind, have a built-in logic to them, but this goes beyond ergonomic common sense. Running a kitchen is pretty much my birthright. Switches were flipped to turn on the lights, and the prepackaged monstrosities they call meals were pulled out of the freezer. Oil was set to heat, and the sorry excuse for a grill was fired up. The raccoon, a creature I would otherwise have never tolerated in my kitchen, was busying herself ripping open packages of sausages and bags of bread. I expected she wanted the questionable food inside, but she didn't bother with any of it, scampering from one thing to another until all the ingredients were open. By the time the first batch of hot dogs were pulled out of the microwave, we both noticed the change. Her black ears perked towards the rank, and her beady eyes stared towards the counter of the snack bar, where a mesh metal curtain still separated us from any potential customers. They're coming, I whispered. All sounds of skating and carnage had stopped, leaving behind only the occasional whimper or moan of pain. Even that was soon drowned out by the hard stomping of ghostly metal blades on concrete stairs and floors. The raccoon unlocked and pulled open the mesh while I gathered up condiments and started to set out paper plate after paper plate of hot dogs, pizza slices, and, as soon as the oil permitted it, flavorless machine-cut fries. There was no point in trying to take orders, and I certainly wasn't going to worry about allergies or any other intolerances. I simply threw as much food as I could on the counter and hoped for the best. Soon, too soon for my comfort, the sounds got so close that I knew I should be seeing the apparitions. But as they did on the ice, the ghosts of the dead hockey players only allowed themselves to be seen after they'd been heard. 
Glowing greenish-blue forms materialized, coalesced from absent smoke, into a throng of visions from beyond the grave. They seemed normal at first, if lacking in a bit of opacity, but as they pulled off their helmets and gloves, I was shown a much more vivid portrait of the victims of Anthony Gillard's neglect. Flesh burnt down to the bone with nothing but empty sockets for eyes spoke of a death that could not have been anything but agony. Fingers with missing skin and swollen joints grabbed at paper plates, slathering hot dogs with mustard, drowning fries in ketchup, or stuffing slices of pizza down deformed mouths with missing teeth and cracked lips. Soon, the players were joined by the other unfortunates who'd perished in the fire that followed the tragedy. Coaches, family members, and friends who'd come to see their loved ones play. All were ravenous, as if carrying with them a hunger from the day they died. The ordeal lasted for what seemed like an hour, and I thought for a moment that perhaps I'd be preparing terrible food for the damned until I, too, died here. My own personal version of hell. After too long, the apparition started to vanish, as if sated with sodium and nitrates and empty carbohydrates, each would dissipate, blown into nothingness by an impossible wind. It must have been after midnight when I got back to the Aquilo Cafe. By then, the little runt of a raccoon was content to let me carry her, and I was too exhausted to care if she scratched at my skin. Besides, we'd gone through a unique bonding experience together. It's one thing to form the ties of camaraderie in the trenches of a busy kitchen, but one assailed by the starving dead? Here, I said, sitting on one of the stools across the counter and reaching into the bakery display. You deserve it. I handed my new friend a brioche, which seemed to be her favorite. I expected her to sit on the counter and devour the treat, satisfied that she'd worked for the privilege. Instead, she put it in her mouth and ran to the back door. You can't be serious, I muttered. But she was. Even when handed a pastry, her first thought wasn't to eat it herself, but rather to bring it to her ungrateful brethren. From past experiences, I suspected that they would take the brioche and share it among themselves, leaving precious little for the runt. Wait, I told her as she clawed at the door, brioche in her jaw. By the time I opened the door for her, I had a bag filled with everything from the display. Merry Christmas, jerks. I pushed up the top of the garbage pan and showered the assembled nursery of raccoons with my baked goods, hoping this would be enough that they would allow my little friend to finally enjoy her brioche. Merry Christmas, I repeated to myself once back inside, alone in my cafe. It wasn't all bad. Lonely, maybe, but I'd done better than the half-dozen people who'd been hurt at the arena that night. Certainly better than Dr. Ilias Payne, who'd broken more than his fair share of bones. An ephemeral pang of sympathy swelled in my heart for a moment. He'd been careless, maybe, but he didn't deserve the kind of suffering he'd endured. All he wanted was to throw a party and have his daughter with him one last time for Christmas. Miriam? My name came on the tale of door chimes ringing, spoken in the voice of Helen Edna, Notary Public. When I raised my head to look at why she was here, I was surprised that she was not alone. Far from it. The cold wind, snow, and over two dozen people flooded inside the Aquilo. Some carried plates, dishes, and serving trays, while others had crutches and bandaged limbs. It took a moment, but I recognized the smell the unmistakable, intimate, and unique aroma of my own cooking. Though cold at that point, the odor was like a fingerprint, or like seeing your own face reflected in a mirror. They'd brought my feast back. Already, people were serving what could be eaten cold to each other, while others were asking to use the kitchen to warm up the rest. No one was going to set foot in my kitchen, but I was glad to heat the stroganoff and put a few other things in the oven so they'd be palatable again. Making food for others brings a smile to my face under any circumstance. Well, almost any circumstance, but as I busied myself resurrecting my feast, I could almost feel the width of the counter that separated me from the guests. Every inch of it felt like a mile, watching from a distance as they all talked and ate and celebrated together. 
I wondered if Doris ever felt like this. Part of the community, but not quite a member of it. A fresh cup of hot coffee warmed my hands just as a cool breeze intruded on my pity party. I didn't make much of it. With all the comings and goings of the refugees of Ilias Payne's solstice celebration, it was just one more thing in the chaos of an ongoing social event. Then, a cold, clawed paw scratched gently at my arm. Sitting on the counter, brioche between her teeth, my little friend looked at me for a moment, a glint of blue light behind her black, liquid eyes. You too, eh? I asked, expecting no answer. She leaned her furry head on my arm, calmly, and finally nibbled on her prized treat. We watched the festivities with detached amusement. She ate baked goods, and I scratched her behind the ears until the very last guest walked out the door. Then we sat together in silence for another hour, comrades in arms who'd survived two parties and a haunting together. Then, just as I started dozing off, she stood gave me one final look, and scampered to the back door to be let out. A gust of freezing air rushed in as I cracked the door open. My little friend shivered as her fur bristled in the cold wind. Reaching behind the counter, I grabbed the bottle of cider Olivia had given me. It would never have made it to Montreal and never become a gift for my parents at this point. I can't remember what I did with the cider, but I took off the fleece ribbon and, bending to one knee, tied it around the raccoon's neck. I didn't think it would do much to keep her warm, and I assumed she'd tear it off the moment she got the chance, but as she scampered out into the snow, she looked like an adorable cartoon animal. I let her go, knowing she'd return behind my back to steal more food for her weird little garbage family. We'd see each other again, but it wouldn't be as irritated neighbors anymore. Good night, Brioche, I said, trying the name for the first time. She stopped, turned around, and, after giving me a curious look, waved back before disappearing between the garbage bins. Aquilo is written by J.F. Dubow, narrated and produced by me, Amy Frost. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your preferred podcast platform. You have no idea how much it helps. Questions, comments, email us at aquillow at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the username Aquillow.